Welcome to Next Normal, the podcast that is reimagining capitalism and exploring the ways that money can do so much more than just make more money. Here is your host, the co-founder of the Global Impact Investing Network, Ahmed Buri. Hello, everyone. I'm so glad you're with us for this newest episode of Next Normal. Our podcast is charting pathways toward the next normal in our global economic system. And to get there, we seek out all kinds of perspectives, highlighting the wide variety of approaches that are driving progress. And our guest today is a compelling combination of perspectives. An investor who says the system is broken, an economist calling for radical economic transformation. Hans Segman is the chief investment strategist at Triodos Investment Management. He was appointed to the role last summer to guide the firm's overall investment strategy and to guard the central role of positive impact and sustainability in everything the firm does. Last year, he co-authored Triodos Bank's landmark report entitled Reset the Economy. Hans puts his vision of a very different future at the center of his investment work, and I know all of our listeners will be inspired by what they hear. Hans, welcome to The Next Normal. Thanks for having me. I want to begin on a topic that continues to dominate the global conversation, the pandemic. Early this year, you wrote a column that described COVID as an inequality accelerator. And I have often had the same observation when I look around at the world and see how inequality has been exacerbated by the crisis. How are things looking from the European perspective? And how confident are you that our recovery is headed in the right direction? Yeah, maybe to start with the inequality part. I think in the beginning of the pandemic, you had stories from people saying it it hits us all, so it's an equalizer. But from multiple perspectives, we can only say that it's an inequality accelerator. If you look at between countries, what, what we see also now happening between rich and poor countries, we see richer countries like the US, like in Europe, people get vaccinated and we are opening up already a little. In India, Brazil, we have a completely different story. So that, that's on the, on the vaccine part. Also on the public debt and, and policy part, we see rich countries having the luxury to shield economies from the worst effects with a lot of public money going into that. And I I think for a part that's good with emerging economies don't have the luxury. Uh, So that's really between rich and poor countries, but also between rich and poor people. As my work is also looking at the financial markets every day, we in the beginning had the story about steeply declining equity prices, a real panic (laughs) more than a year ago. And from the 23rd of March, it's a bull market again. And that is only in favor of, in general, the haves on the people that already have assets, housing, I think also house prices globally really go to the roof, but also equity markets. You know, it's a monetary policy, but also fiscal policy is driving inequality. And, and the last version of it in terms of inequality is what we also see that the bigger companies with the biggest possibilities to steer their supply chains, even production companies, they, they are less hit by the, the second and the third waves of the pandemic. So the, the resilience in the economy from that perspective was better than we thought it would be, but only for the bigger companies. In general, the small and medium-sized companies in, in almost every country are suffering. So we see 
big against small, rich against poor, and and also generations against generation, and that, that's that's really the last part of it. You see older people in in rich countries who are in general more affluent and had the potential of being hit more by the virus winning compared to the younger generation who lose education and in the end have to pay for the higher public debt so that's a generational effect and i think that will come back to us to all of us in terms of instability of our economies yeah that absolutely resonates and i think one of the things that we've seen is that you know those with market power um, have gained greater market power, yeah. whether that's countries, companies, or individuals. Yeah. And at the same time, the pandemic has put a spotlight in inequities in our system in ways that made them visible to people who may not have realized they were there. And so we've seen massive you know, inequities when it comes to socioeconomic disparities, racial disparities, gender disparities, and others getting much more attention than I think they were getting you know, before the pandemic. And even before the pandemic, though, the fundamental flaws and the gaps in our economic system have been too visible and unsustainable. And we usually begin our podcast by briefly addressing the underlying problem or root causes with our economic system. And your Reset the Economy report breaks them into three big buckets. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what those are and also how your thinking has evolved since you published that, given that it was uh, last year and the pandemic and, and the crisis has continued to unfold? Yeah, we, we had three big buckets, uh, which still hold in general, I would say. And the first one is is our relation with nature. Of course, as being a pandemic uh, coming from, from animals uh, in general. So our relation with nature is central to the cause of the pandemic, but also one of the root causes from what is wrong in our economic system. We use really too much of nature we are living too close to animals we transport a lot <laughs> too many animal animals and our food and agricultural system globally is really unsustainable so our relation between our nature and economy is 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 really troublesome and report the dasgupta review of last february so the the, the report of the economics of biodiversity as it is called is really a massive volume but it really explains the same problem is if we go on with a growth economy with an extracting economy then we can wait for new problems in our relationship with nature so that's the one big bucket which gets even bigger and bigger and the second bucket is, is i think we discussed part of it already it's about inequality and how we can handle that and and that's not new of course if we look into inequality the root causes have been there for for decades already i think starting in the early 1980s a lot of what we see now started there deregulation in general all policies favoring companies in the way saying that helps competition but ended up like we discussed before only favoring big companies and not being a market that really work according to what you would see as an economist but also in in line with that financial markets deregulated financial markets with even every year lower interest rates or looser monetary policies and higher debt feed into that inequality so making the stable in total less stable and I think at, at this moment, uh, so, so that's new, we wrote a report last year, a year later, we can only say that the stability of the system 
did not increase on that in that perspective. And the the last bucket is on on the resilience of the economy and the economic system. And I think that also relates to the discussions we had had the last weeks on tax policies. So can we make an economic system where everybody pays its fair share? So make that also more resilient in people profiting, uh, benefiting, and also paying their, their fair share on where they benefit from. That would really help, but also in a system, and this is really going to the core of the system, if we have a system only trained in terms of efficiency, only geared to, in terms of transactions, on financial gains, on making the best out of the short-term transactions and relations you have, every relation, a system can never be resilient. Because you only have transactions, you don't have any relations. And for resilience, you need also to have relations with other actors in the system, be it firms or be it persons or be it societies. And that is really lost in that kind of neoliberal mood we're still in. And that culminates, of course, in this time of pandemic, but it it could even be another cause. But I think that's what we still see. And if I look back on what we've written a year ago, we were talking about the reset the economy and looking rather optimistic from home. What can we do when we sit at home? A year later, I'm 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 getting a little bit more pessimistic and, and already thinking about how can we reset this reset to, to make it go in the right direction. Yeah, I, I think that also resonates with me in, you know, in this you know, kind of a year later, kind of how are we thinking about this? And it does seem that we have a much greater risk of kind of returning back to the system that we had and not incorporating some of the lessons and the vision of you know, what we've experienced into how we think about you know, the system we want in the future. I do want to talk to you a little bit about your vision for that future system. But before I do so, I, I want to ask you a little bit more about um, talking about the relationship with nature. One thing that I've observed as I'm sure many others have as well, is that when we think about the environment from the perspective of an investor, what's become very dominant is the focus on climates. And it's understandable due to the nature of the climate crisis and, and the need for investors to shift the way they work to help address it. Um, but even within climate, we've seen the focus be centrally oriented around carbon and emissions. Um, also understandable, but I do think some of the work we're doing at the Global Impact Investing Network and we see in the broader markets as well is a greater recognition of the relationship between investment and nature. Can you talk a little bit about as an investment strategist, um, why are you thinking about nature? You know, why, why, How does this show up for you as an investor? Yeah, maybe also as an impact investor, because I think <laughs> mainstream investing starts also to see biodiversity, I think. but uh, mainstream finance see it also sees nature as a risk, and I always have a trouble seeing nature or biodiversity as a risk. <laughs> but it's a good thing that finance starts to see nature as important for investment decisions. And I think, on the one hand, if you talk about the, the risk part, you see it from an ecosystem perspective, from what what are ecosystem services you need in an investment. So what are the risks of being exposed to, to resources and getting lost or whatever? So also in the supply chain, I think it's important that they are on the radar. But that's not, to be honest, the thing that I want to go to. I want, from an investment perspective, or as an impact investor, I, I think the task for us is more to see the restorative part. Where can we regenerate nature? 
where can we have in investments there also if i look at triodos and what we do most of it is of course being not exposed to the, to the biggest risk from nature but where we really want to go is where can we add regenerative value and i think that's if you combine it with the discussion we have on climate i think on uh, regenerative investments either on offsetting carbon or regenerating biodiversity i think that's one of the biggest topics i think that should be the next playing field for every investment for every investor the coming years because if we don't make that investable because that's still a challenge how can you have a rewilding project or whatever what is the return we, you know the discussions but i think we should go further with that discussion so make it blended fines or, or make other investments instruments available to make that investable on a large scale because in the end if you talk about a relationship with nature that's what we need to have big investments into nature in a positive way and uh, and for me still the discussion on carbon uh, reduction it's still risk mitigation and to be honest we don't have time for only doing risk mitigation we need to have positive impact on nature and better sooner than later yeah, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and I think that flip in terms of the mindset and the frame is so important. One from a focus on extraction of value and the use of resources just to generate financial value to one of regeneration, you know, where investment can help actually create value or enhance value and not just from a financial perspective, but also you know, help to strengthen nature and natural systems. This is actually a great um, logic point to think about you know, where you would like to see the market go and how you would like to see it evolve. One of the things that you've said, in order to effectively work for change, that you must have, quote, a clear view about what world we want to live in. Can you paint a picture of what a transformed economic system would look like? Like, what is the end goal of when we think about economic transformation? Yeah, this, this is a big question, of course. <laughs> because, yes. <laughs> um, also, also, if you look at what all wise people have written or what policymakers have done, because we, of course, have the sustainable development goals as a kind of uh, maybe scattered picture and, and a lot of smart people who gave their vision on what the world should be. But I think we need something. If you talk about impact investing, you need to have some idea on where you want to go. At Triodos, we all, always talk also about transition. We invest in transition, but my point is you can only invest in a transition if you know what kind of endpoint you would have. And we, we can make it very complex, but in the end, it's rather simple. On the one hand, you, you must have an economy within planetary boundaries. So that's, since we're out of them, I think that's the main priority in terms of what economy you, you want to have. Otherwise, you don't have any economy. That's also a choice, but I think that's not a choice we want to make. And on the other hand, you need some kind of, uh, let's call it in the words of, of the British economist Kate Rayworth, some kind of social foundation. You need some some minimum on where people can live on, on the social perspective. And that, of course, can differ, but it has to be a living minimum and a, a human perspective that's good enough. So that's a very simple, in the end, it boils down to very simple things. Uh, if you have a vision and you can can make it concrete on the different topics, and that's what we also want to do at Triodos, take a holistic perspective on how we invest. So also, if we invest in financial inclusion in emerging markets, I think you should also take account of the ecological side effects of your investment. So you also have to reconsider 
of course, the positive effects of your investment on the one hand on social inclusion for, for that matter. But on the other hand, you also have to see what, what does it mean for climate change and, and, and the other aspect. But in the end, that vision you have as an investor, it's not politics. It's a vision you have for a sustainable world, which is at the moment kind of common sense. I think over the, the last few years, we have seen a remarkable shift also in science. We know we have planetary boundaries. We know we can only have an economy within those planetary boundaries. And in the end, that also means, and that's very relevant for investors, we have to think about growth, about economic growth and economic activity where we can invest in. There is a limit, seriously, there is a limit <laughs> to economic growth and maybe also to the long-term returns we can expect from investments if we just invest in an economy. And I think that's the point for impact investors in general, really to discuss, yes, we're trying to do good, we're trying to have impact, but we can only have impact in the longer run if we have also a vision of a sustainable future. You know, great. And I think, you know, at a time when we are very viscerally experiencing what it's like to live in a system out of balance and, you know, during a pandemic that is wreaking devastation in so many communities around the world, I do find it inspiring to think about, you know, what it could be and, and what the vision, you know, for the future could be like. And, and, you know, this vision for a sustainable world, can you talk about what that would look and feel like for various stakeholders? You know, what would it be like in a boardroom? You know, how would citizens experience it? So for one part, I was thinking also last summer, I think when I was sitting at home and, and experiencing, when for me, working at home means being more in the neighborhood, so being more part of a social community. So I think one part of a sustainable future is also a more relaxed society. So people spending less time in the red race of work and commuting and doing things they also don't like. And spending more time because they want to and see the benefit of spending more time in your own community, so spending time with your kids. So, so a more relaxed. So this is the Western perspective. So I think in, in, in a lot of Western countries, a more sustainable society means also a more relaxed society, a more balanced society. And it should also lead in the end to more balanced persons, because there's a lot to do in mental health also, but also in obesity, etc. It's all linked to each other, and it's all linked in the end to materialism, where we are very busy with only consuming. From the more emerging market perspective, it's, it's I think, different. It starts with giving people adequate education, health services, wages, and that's the start and that's essential. So being able to have a normal life like we also experience in, in richer countries, that's already a big agenda. But we, can, we must combine those agendas by saying, yes, in richer countries, we should really reconsider what's the purpose of our society. Is it growth or is it well-being? And what does it mean for each and every person in society? But also, what does it mean for companies? Should we, if we discuss with CEOs of companies, can we also discuss their remuneration, their purpose of the company? And should it not be aligned with our idea of what well-being should be? So also their growth targets, is that not something we also should discuss, which are really fundamental discussions and where you can also think, 
what does it mean for an investor and what does it mean for your uh, returns? But I think in general, that kind of a discussion will help in the end to do risk mitigation and will also in the end help companies to have a long run stable return in a society where they also are not the stranded assets, but are still part of, because I think that's what a lot of big companies miss at the moment is that they can also become stranded assets because they will not be part of a sustainable society. No, thanks. And, and it's really exciting to think about that vision and to think about what it would be like, you know, if everyone had enough and if everyone had opportunity. And I like this idea of a more relaxed society. So now it's time for the easy questions. Um, how do we get from here to there? Um, you know, <laughs> where do we start? <laughs> That's, of course, one of the biggest questions. This was a big question, but this is also a challenging one. What we try to do at Triodos, and I think a lot of investors also do the same, is start with kind of intentional investing. Uh, so you, you have an intention, you have a, a maybe vague idea of that future, and start from there. And that means directing capital in a different route, like we see now over the last few months also in what's happening with fossil fuels, that's massive, which started with, with investors saying, you don't have to invest in fossil fuel, you can invest in renewables. And we see a lot of pressure building up now on big oil companies together with different policies. We see that shift. We see that transition happening in front of our eyes. I think it's going so fast. And that gives optimism that you can do a lot of those things also on different transitions. So also in food and agri sector, you can change food and agri supply chains and make it more sustainable if you make the right choices, if you have the right discussion. So it's always a combination of what you can do as an investor, directing your capital in a certain way, using your stewardship, so your, your engagement activities, but also make, creating examples, positive examples of what can happen. Because there are always people who say now it's impossible. So the, answer, the short answer to your question is create the best examples. That sets people in motion. That absolutely resonates with, I think, what motivates many impact investors, you know, is to start establishing those models of a future vision that's more in balance. You know, companies that are both trying to achieve financial targets, but also trying to achieve social and environmental impact and building that into their business model. So I like that thinking of you helping to manifest the future in the world that we're in today. And I know you've also written about what are some of the longer term building blocks that are important to support a transformed system. Could you speak a little bit about your thinking on that front? Like, what are the things we need to have in place? Yeah, I, I think I've already touched upon a few. One of them is what I call redefine. That's on a, different, a few different levels. And I think as impact investors, we part of it already do is asking also in, in the reporting of companies to give all the impact they have uh, companies and it, hopefully in a systematic way and on a macroeconomic level, it's about changing economic growth for well-being. So a broader set of indicators where you should steer on, but it's the same on the company level and also in the project finance level, it's all the same. How can you measure what you are doing only if you have more metrics than only the financial ones? And also in the last few months, you see a, a big movement also in the investment industry trying to harmonize all those efforts on integrated reporting, et cetera. And I think that's the right way. And the more harmonization we get, the faster the transition will go. 
Another one is is on on redesign, uh, redesigning the system, and that's also what we touched upon already. Also, for instance, has to do with a circular economy. How do we use materials in an economy, but also closely related to that, how do we see ownership of products and materials and resources in an economy? And that, again, touches upon one other very big topic, and that's about the commons. Do we only have private ownership or do we also have common ownership? And if we go back to our relation with nature, that's one of the essential elements we have also as investors to really think about what's our role and what can we do with the commons. So with common ownership, with land, can we make investment projects where we free land from over-exploitation, still make a business case out of it, but also let people work on the land with, a, with an adequate return? That kind of thinking is, I think, what we need there. So as, as an example, what we can do there. Yeah, and I always have a lot of reads, and 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 as 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 everyone has talking about what should we create differently, but but for now I think one one other element, which was not in the paper last year, but I think is now necessary, is reconnect, connect with other people, connect with investees in our case, but also connect with with clients, connect also with other investors. Because that's uh, that's where the gin, uh, of course, comes comes also in. But I think it's really important as impact investors also to work together because that's the only asset. So to use each other in a network, that's where you create mass and where you create also transitions. So I think that's also a very important one. Absolutely. And I think this is an important time, right, where in some ways there is more space, and, and at least in some countries, you know, where the pandemic is, you know, under control, or at least has subsided, you know, to a large degree, where there are opportunities to kind of like, you know, revisit and reconnect and also uh, reimagine, you know, the system that we're living in. One of the fears I have, though, also is that we've gone you know, through such a challenging time that there is a strong desire to return to normal you know, to what we know. And there's even just habits that, that we've formed in you know, across in systems that are in place. But, you know, it's important for us to like incorporate what we've learned, you know, through the pandemic and what it's helped illuminate and, and, and channel that into a better system going forward. How do you think we maintain the urgency to do that? Yeah, that's a challenging question. I, I don't know how it is in the US, but in Europe, we see people longing for a summer when they can go to, in the plane on a holiday. And it's also in the Netherlands now a discussion, can we go on, on holiday and how will it look like? And that's really a danger. People forget so quickly. And that's that's from behavioral economics. We know that if you are forced to different behavior and it gives you any benefit, it will stay. If it doesn't give you any benefit, it will immediately evaporate and, and, and get lost. My hope is... But that's maybe only hope that we will see some changes from beneficial behavioral changes we have seen. For instance, I think that a lot of people will work more from home and that, that working uh, so that, that a lot of things that were uncommon can become common. But I'm a little bit afraid that, and you see it also in the reactions to the, to the virus, that people think, oh, that's done. We have it under control. Our old lives can start again. While we know that this was one 
virus, but we can get other ones. And we also know, and I think that's the bigger threat, that a lot of money that is spent by, by governments is only spent on the old system. So a lot of also fossil fuel companies got a lot of uh, help, airlines got a lot of uh, relief. And that also means that policymakers are not really forward looking. And hopefully, and I see some also some positive signs also in the US, but also in, in, in Europe, but I see still that, that a lot of policymakers are in a kind of panic mode still. And that, that means that the longing for only the past is still very heavy. So I'm, I'm still, to be honest, I'm still worried that we will forget a lot of the, these lessons we have learned. And I think mostly last year in spring, and after that, it, I don't know how it was in the US, but in, in Europe, we were only waiting, oh, then another wave and another wave, but there's the vaccine and then we can go back to normal. And that's, that's I think, a threat because we also discussed that in that old normal, we had some serious flaws and they're not solved when we go back. No, I think that's right. And I think that's part of you know, even the name of the podcast of the next normal is trying to think about how we can not just think about returning to the normal we left, but how we can think about the normal that's ahead and how do we shape it. And as people think about how to drive change, um, you know, people you know, often see this as a result of different catalysts. You know, oftentimes the most visible ones are big, powerful institutions that create change. But there's also a lot that can happen at the community or grassroots level. How do you see change being driven when it comes to our economic system? Yeah, it's this is also a big question. But it's, <laughs> what you saw in history, and I, I'm thinking about the book of Piketty, not his first one, but the second one, the, also the big one that came out last year. What he said there, you have politics and ideology. Ideology is the longer run thing. So you have to get ideas and it can take decades before that, that ideas come to politics. Politics is the short run, the short term thing where you need some window where it can get to a policy. And I think at this time, if you take inequality, but also on, on climate, we have had long decades of discussion and we have some ideology forming over the last at least 10 years. And maybe we can get now it into politics. And that's, that's one part where I'm sometimes hopeful of that I see things happening. I see governments acting in a different way. I see also the IMF, the International Monetary Fund, doing, saying at least different things, but also acting sometimes diff differently. So that's, that's the higher level. But also, if you look at, uh, and that's more what we do as impact investors, what you can show with your investments, but also where capital is going, it's going more and more to change, to change to projects or initiatives where you can make a difference. So that's the other part. So we have the top-down level, which is the long run, and we have the bottom-up grassroots movements where change happens. But at some point in time, and, and, and that's the answer to your question, it has to come together. And if it does not come together at the right moment, you get a crash. <laughs> and sometimes I'm optimistic, but it's also in a time like this that you can say, yeah, there are a lot of 
instable factors in the economy. So that there's when you talk about the global debt level, if you talk about the balance sheets of governments, but also if you talk about the power in the economy, uh, we talked about big tech versus other companies, but also in a lot of economies, Western and, and emerging markets, where large part of the population don't feel that they're heard, that, that they're understood, that they are part of society. On the one hand, that can lead to a social movement and grassroots that turn out to be positive. But on the other hand, if the top-down line will not understand it in the right moment, you get, get the wrong policies. And up till now, we did not have the right policies to bring that together. And the only thing I see also in the US and in, and in Europe is that there is more willingness to come to the right policies. And there, investors can have space to contribute to that but it's it's a delicate process yeah and and i think we'll have to move to some easy questions soon um but before i do so i did want to ask one other big question which is um you know just as we, we process all everything that you've shared and you know if we could just take like zoom out for a moment and talk about where are you seeing the most traction on reimagining capitalism you know you know where the where do you see the greatest movement that's giving you kind of hope for progress there are a number of of areas. I, I see it in ac academia. I see a lot of economic papers coming out where I think, oh, that's that's great, but it's still very theoretical. I see, and I, I think that that's everywhere. I, I see it in grassroots, in initiatives of ordinary people, sometimes working together with new initiatives, trying to fill gaps and just showing that they can do it without any investors, without any help from, from governments or, or public bodies. And also sometimes in politics, I see some some positive signs. And that's maybe that's how I feel every week. I have to say that some at the morning I'm I'm optimistic because I heard something nice and say, yeah, we can do it. Yes, really, we can do it. And then in the afternoon something else comes, and 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 then you see also the the power of vested interests, which makes it really hard to change. And that's always every day again. It's it's the same. But there, sure there are. I think in every country, in every area, also positive initiatives that, that gain power, definitely. Before I let you go, um, I do uh, want to turn to our lightning round with just a few quick questions, really to get your ideas and inspiration uh, to share with our listeners. So as you think about the future of capitalism, which country do you have your eye on? Maybe it's a, a not expected answer, but maybe Germany is going in the right direction. I want to be optimistic here. Uh, maybe, maybe to explain why I said Germany, because they claimed a few years ago their, their carbon target would be higher, eh? so, so they have a stricter target on the carbon emissions. They try to unify Europe, which I think is very important. And of course, they do a lot of things wrong, but it would be too easy to pick New Zealand or Bhutan or whatever as, as the country I want to, <laughs> which would be the best. So that's why Germany. <laughs> Okay, fair enough. Which leader do you have your eye on? It must be a woman, I think. I think in this point in time, feminine leadership helps for the challenges we have. So that means connecting not only masculine leadership, because most of the time that leads to war. Maybe one of the candidates, of course, is for me Greta Thunberg, because she, she does something different. 
I already said Germany, so not Angela Merkel. That's, that would be too much. So then maybe also Jessica Erdern of, of New Zealand, who really tries also to put those things I said before, like well-being economics, so a broader agenda for a government, leadership on that, try to put it in practice. And I think that's an example for other countries also. And what is the best book you can recommend on this topic? Yeah, that's a book... I think I've read last week. It's from Professor Tim Jackson. I don't know if you know him. It's about post-growth economics, or post-growth, life after capitalism. And what he does in his book is not saying it should go in that or that direction. It's more philosophical, trying to first ask the right questions. And he's looking back on different uh, philosophers and what they said about well-being, about all different aspects of, of the economy. And what I learned from that book is uh, that's not in new ideas that we have to find a solution, but escaping from our old ideas. And one of the big old ideas is still the economy we have. And I think in, if you talk about the next normal and what should it be, it should mostly be escaping from old ideas that are still out there. And finally, uh, if you could recommend that we interview one more person on this topic, uh, who would it be? Yeah, of course, I would say Tim Jackson. He also knows a lot about the investment community, and he has great ideas, I think. Hans, thank you for your time with us. There was so much of what you said that really resonated with me, but I was especially struck by this idea of you know, a vision for a sustainable world and how we think about embedding the principles of regeneration and balance you know, into the economy and how we think about the economy operating within the planetary boundaries and see that as a way of shaping investment strategy and investor behavior. And of course, you know, thinking about shifting our mindset around ownership and how we think about more common ownership of, of common assets, uh, and even how we think about measurement. Obviously, in the area where the gin does a lot of work, but I think it's so critical for us to figure out you know, how we want to you know, redesign purpose, as you say, but also you know, align our measurement tools with that purpose that we seek. So thank you again for participating in the show. Thanks for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to this podcast and share your thoughts about Hans' vision for our next normal on social media. Our next normal community knows that money can do so much more than just make more money. And with your help, we're aiming to show the world how. Until next time, take care. <laughs>